Did life evolve or was it created by God? It was created. Well, that was a short show. Well, this week on Creation Magazine Live, we're exploring powerful evidence that life was fearfully and wonderfully made by God. It's reasonable and logical to be a Christian, and we'll discuss yet another reason why on today's podcast. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. I'm Thomas Bailey. And I'm Matt Bondi. You know, Richard Dawkins, the world's best-known atheist, said, It's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Okay, four <laughs> options, that's all? Just four. So no intelligent, informed person would deny evolution. Wow. Actually, the assessment of some of the commenters on these shows on YouTube also think we're wicked. Yeah, and apparently you can trust uh, Dawkins' assessment because a genus of fish has been named after him, uh, Dawkinsia, and the lead researcher said, Richard Dawkins has, through his writings, helped us understand that the universe is far more beautiful and awe-inspiring than any religion has imagined. We hope that Dawkinsia will serve as a reminder of the elegance and simplicity of evolution, the only rational explanation there is for the unimaginable diversity of life on Earth. <laughs> the only <laughs> the rational only explanation, really. <laughs> Today we're summarizing some evidence that life is incredibly created by God. And we'll show you why that is the only rational explanation for the unimaginable diversity of life on Earth. Okay, let's start with a few admissions that typically stun evolutionists. You know, creationists accept as scientific fact natural selection, mutations, uh, that gene change happens from one generation to the next, or let's say uh, we accept change in allele frequencies over time, um, and even adaptation of living things to changing environments, uh, including antibiotic resistance and speciation. Yes, we actually believe that diversity in a group of living things can become so great that individuals within that group can no longer interbreed, and that group becomes two distinct species. And if that isn't shocking enough to evolutionists, let's add a final point. None of those things, no matter how many millions of years you can imagine, will ever evolve a single cell into something like a, a horse or a human. You know, living things can change uh, genetically over time. I mean, that's a fact. But not all change is evolution. I mean, to evolve a single cell into human requires a certain kind of change. And nothing in that list produces the kind of change that evolution needs. So now we'll spend the rest of our time today going through some of those things showing that they actually work quite well in a biblical creationist context, but not an evolutionary context. Well, that's certainly the case with natural selection, because it was uh, written about by creationists decades before Charles Darwin published his world-changing book. Creationist Edwin Blythe was the man whose ideas probably influenced Darwin the most. Uh, an English chemist and zoologist, Blythe wrote three major articles on natural selection that were published in uh, the magazine of Natural History from 1835 to 1837. Uh, he also had some amazing sideburns. I mean, just look at those bad boys. <laughs> Maybe that'll come back in style. Maybe. Darwin was well aware of these articles. The University of Cambridge in England has Darwin's own copies of the issues containing the Blythe articles, with Charles's handwritten notes in the margins. Yeah, but he never gave Blythe credit. I mean, not even for the sideburns. Nope. <laughs> even today, a lot of people think Darwin invented natural selection. Okay, now let's explain how natural selection works and why it's actually no help to evolution. Okay, we'll use an example from an article in Creation Magazine from years ago 
Uh, it's now online at creation.com slash muddywaters. And let's say a population of plants has a mix of genes for the length of its roots. If that population is exposed to generations of very dry weather, the plants most likely to survive are obviously the ones with the longer roots. They get, you know, they get yeah. down to the deep water tables. Uh, so the one on the left side survives, the one with the short roots doesn't, and the two with medium roots, well, you know, they might make it. So the genes for shorter roots are less likely to get passed on. After a number of generations, if the dry weather continues, none of these plants will have genes for short roots. They'll all be of the long root type. And since all the plants now have long roots, they are now better adapted to dry conditions than their forebears were. Yeah, okay, so this is how natural selection and adaptation work. Uh, now, many more details could be added, but those are the basics. This adaptation, uh, really a fine-tuning to the environment, mm -hmm. was seen by Darwin to be a process which was essentially creative and virtually without limits. He thought that if new varieties could arise in a short time to suit their environment, then given enough time, any number of new characteristics, even totally new creatures, could appear. This was how he believed lungs originally arose in a lungless world and feathers in a featherless one. Yeah, now Darwin didn't know how heredity really works, uh, but people today should know better. I mean, he didn't know, for example, that what is passed on in reproduction is essentially a whole lot of information parcels or genes of coded instructions. It cannot be stressed enough that what natural selection actually does is get rid of information. It's not capable of creating anything new, just by definition. In the example, the plants became better able to survive uh, dry weather because of the elimination of the genes that specify short roots. So they lost a portion of the information that their ancestors had. Yeah, now the price paid for adaptation or specialization is always the permanent loss of some of the information in that group of organisms. If the environment were to change back so that you know, the shorter roots were the only way for plants to survive, the information for shorter roots wouldn't, you know, magically reappear. I mean, the population would not be able to adapt to that new environment and would simply die out. Evolution can refer to many different things, and evolutionists often call these things that we just mentioned evolution. In other words, evolution can simply mean any change over time. <laughs> well, that's confusing. I mean, adaptation and natural selection are change over time, uh, but they're very different from the historical concept of evolution or the belief that all life evolved from a single cell. Now, when we say evolution, most of the time we're referring to this idea that is meant to explain the origin of all living things we see today. So just to recap what evolutionists believe, let's start with a single cell. Here's our hypothetical single cell that evolution theory says eventually evolved into humans, for Wait, example. Uh, where, where did the uh, single cell come from? Shh, don't ask that. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's just start there then. Uh, now, let's think about what needs to happen genetically to evolve a single cell into hippos or hamsters or humans. And that's really where the change needs to happen. It's at the level of genetics. The single cell would have genetic instructions, coding, or blueprints if you like, to build itself, obviously, represented here by these books. So it would have the genetic instructions to build all the thousands of parts needed to make a living cell, which, of course, is very complex. But then, in order to get a, uh, to a human, for example, the cell needs to add more and more instructions to make all of the parts that the single cell doesn't have the instructions for. So at a genetic level, evolution must involve some kind of process 
that generates new genetic instructions to build all these bigger, better features that the single cell didn't have. Right. The single cell didn't have the genetic coding for things like hands, fingers, fingernails, arms, legs, ankles, feet, stomach, kidneys. It just didn't have it. So a major feature that evolution needs is an information-generating mechanism. Yeah, but the mechanism that produces change in living things, uh, like natural selection, they delete information. So natural selection operates exactly opposite to what evolution theory needs. And school textbooks on evolution not only call natural selection evolution, and they'll give examples of natural selection, which are fine, pointing out the little changes that natural selection produces that everybody can see. But then they teach school children, imagine if we had millions of years. This, the little changes could add up into big changes, evolving one kind into another. Uh, no, they can't. I mean, students are being misinformed. The teachers and textbooks are trying to blend together two things that produce opposite effects. The evolution story that, you know, humans evolved from a single cell over millions of years, that's not science. It's a belief about history that no one observed. The observations, that is, the science, the knowledge that we have today about the mechanisms that do produce changes in living things, are modifying living things in a way that could never evolve a single cell to a human. Yeah, think of natural selection like a salad bar. Uh, you can go up to the salad bar a dozen times, uh, each time coming back with a different selection of items. But if the salad bar doesn't have poutine, you ain't never going to get no poutine. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> yes, it is. And in the same way, natural selection can only select from what's already there. That was a very Canadian example, <laughs> yeah, eh? Yeah. So yeah, evolution is like uh, totally hosed then, right? <laughs> yes, but uh, and here's where it gets exciting for Christians. Natural selection beautifully fits biblical creation. Mm -hmm. Going back to the salad bar, if you start with a huge salad bar, then it's possible to get a huge variety of items. God, the master designer, engineer, and programmer, put a huge amount of genetic instructions in the DNA of the originally created kinds. And then through natural and artificial selection, we can get a huge variety within a kind. Scientifically-minded Bible believers have a strong foundation for understanding how we can have different varieties of people and horses and palm trees. And we understand why it's possible to breed different varieties of roses or dogs or tulips. Now, the evolutionist, uh, the one who doesn't accept the reality of an intelligent designer, doesn't have a good explanation of where all the genetic instructions came from. On the other hand, the Genesis account of creation is supported by what we observe scientifically. How are you doing? Right, we're moving pretty quickly, and this can be hard to grasp if you've been taught your whole life that natural selection supports evolution. Okay, let's just summarize before moving on. Uh, natural selection happens. Adaptation happens. These things can be observed in groups of living things today. Yeah. But evolution of microbes to microbiologists, well, that hasn't been observed. Uh, the reason why simply adding millions of years to natural selection won't result in evolution is that it's the types of changes that natural selection makes are taking living things in the wrong direction. It's not about the amount of change either. Right. Take dogs, for example. There's a huge variety in the dog kind, both in wild dogs, those being the result of natural selection, and domestic dogs, the result of artificial selection. The wolf and the chihuahua both came from the original canine kind. Well, that's a lot of change. <laughs> now, about kinds. The Bible says that God created kinds of living things. 
Now, people wonder how that relates to today's classification system. In most cases, the descendants of the original kinds would today be grouped within what modern taxonomists call a genus, uh, and sometimes as high as the family level. There's a great variety within a kind today, that is, within a, a genera or a family. Another thing we need to admit about adaptation is that it's brilliant programming by God. God engineered living things to be able to adapt to changing environments without going extinct at the slightest change. It's what we expect from the master engineer, the master creator, designer described in the Bible. That's right. Natural selection and adaptation, far from being evidence for naturalistic evolution, actually provide powerful support for biblical creation. Now, we're going to move on here, but we understand that this can be difficult to grasp, especially if this is the first time you've heard that natural selection and adaptation don't support evolution. Now, we gave uh, the example of the trees with different length roots. Uh, There are many documented real-life examples of natural selection that will really help you wrap your head around why it's not evolution. Uh, Just go to creation.com slash selection, and those articles will help you work through the details and questions you might have at this point. In addition to natural selection, there are other processes that produce changes in living things. Modern evolutionary theory involves natural selection and mutations. Okay, so our mutation is going to save the day. Uh, Our mutation is going to rescue evolutionists' uh, attempt to explain the diversity of life today? No. Uh, Okay, well, maybe we should uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, okay. Let's restate the goal for evolution first. The goal is, how do you get all the living things today from a single cell? Well, many evolutionists say that any kind of change is evidence for evolution, uh, but the evolution story requires a special type of change. Mm -hmm. It's directional. It's an uphill, information-gaining type of change uh, that's needed here, where new information that builds new structures that didn't exist before pops into existence without an intelligent designer. Some suggest that mutations are doing that. So let's consider that. What are mutations? Mutations are random changes to the genetic code. Okay, that already doesn't sound too promising. (laughs) No. (laughs) But they're usually the result of copying mistakes that happen during cell division when the DNA is copied. Mutations build up in living things beginning right after conception. Cells divide and mutations accumulate. In humans, now this is scary, By the time you're 15, the average cell in your body has 6,000 mutations. Whoa. We're all mutants. (laughs) The average skin cell in a 60-year-old has 40,000 mutations. Wow, it's no wonder skin isn't soft and smooth like a baby's anymore. And, you know, no amount of uh, oil of delay is going to stop that. (laughs) And the the same thing is happening with all the other tissues in your body. Mutations are affecting your vital organs. Mm. Think of it this way. If you die of so-called natural causes, you've mutated to death. (laughs) Yikes. That's morbid thinking. (laughs) Yes, but it does illustrate something important about mutations. They're bad. (laughs) They lead to death. And that's, again, exactly opposite to the role they're supposed to play in evolution. They delete and destroy genetic information that used to work. Okay, but here's the last hope for evolution. Some of the mutations are said to be positive or Mm. good mutations. Uh, Now, the majority are bad. Uh, In fact, it's estimated to be about a million bad mutations to one that might be beneficial. Uh, But it's these so-called beneficial mutations that evolutionists count on for their theory to work. Life was incredibly created by God and could not come about through the mechanisms that evolutionists propose. 
We did a show last year titled Gain of Function Mutations, Not Evidence for Evolution, where we summarized several real-life examples where mutations caused survival advantages, so they could be called beneficial in that sense. But even there, those mutations still don't help evolution. Yeah, read the comments on that episode on YouTube. Uh, you'll see the evolutionists mm. there really struggle with this. Uh, they call us some very interesting names, and, and many of them insist that the examples we gave are our evolution, but uh, they missed the point. And, and that's understandable to some extent. If you only hear one thing growing up, then when someone comes along and presents evidence for a different perspective, it, it can be hard to accept. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. That's right. It's ultimately a spiritual issue. The Holy Spirit needs to soften a hard heart before they can see the truth. But let's go through an example of antibiotic resistance that was hailed as evidence for evolution, but then when scientists dug deeper, it, it turned out to be evidence against evolution. So Helicobacter pylori is a bacteria that lives in your stomach. It attacks the lining of your stomach and can lead to ulcers and stomach cancer. And it can be treated with an antibiotic. Yes, here, here's how it works. The antibiotic is absorbed into the cell, into the bacteria, and inside the bacteria, there's an enzyme which reacts with the antibiotic. And it converts the antibiotic into a poison. The poison kills the bacteria. Yeah, however, there's a mutant variety of H. pylori. The mutation causes the bacteria to lose the ability to produce the enzyme. So the antibiotic is not metabolized into a poison and the bacteria lives. In other words, it survived because of a loss of function. It then goes on to make more little copies of itself, and very quickly you have an entire strain of bacteria that is resistant to the antibiotic. But notice this important point. A loss of something produces a survival advantage. Or let's say something that was working becomes degraded or stops functioning altogether, and that produces a survival advantage. Okay, this is a great example of natural selection and adaptation as a result of what could be called beneficial mutation, uh, but it's a terrible example of evolution. Evolutionists focus on the new thing that the organism is doing, and from a certain point of view, we agree that new things are happening. I mean, the bacteria wasn't wiped out by the antibiotic. That's new. Mm -hmm. But even this very interesting gain-of-function mutation is not evidence for evolution. To clarify how this doesn't help evolution, we could refine the, the ter terminology a little bit. Instead of saying that it's doing something new, it's perhaps more accurate to say that it's just not doing something old. Right. That, that is something that it did before. Yeah, right. It used to be able to metabolize the antibiotic. Uh, now it's not able to metabolize the antibiotic. Mm -hmm. It's lost that ability. The mutation broke that system. A complex system that was working is now broken. Right. That's the simple part to grasp. What's a little harder is that that broken system caused the bacteria to live. Okay, so let's give an analogy. Think of a bicycle. Let's say that the bike is the enzyme and the bike plus the rider is H. pylori. Then a bacterium that is not antibiotic resistant is one that is moving along as usual. Then along comes a car, the antibiotic, and runs into the bike rider, schmuck. The bacterium is dead. Now consider a mutation that removes a link from the bicycle chain and the bike no longer moves. The bike and the rider are now safe from the car. That is, uh, they are antibiotic resistant, but they are not doing anything new. They are simply not doing something old, something that they previously had the ability to do, but do not have that ability anymore. 
So in fact, the antibiotic resistance is not a gain of function, it's a loss of function. That type of change in living things is the wrong type of change needed to evolve a single cell into a human. That's right. Now, we've been talking mostly about the mechanisms that evolutionists say are responsible for evolving a hypothetical single cell that existed millions mm -hmm. of years ago into all the life we see today. Let's summarize. Natural selection, living things adapting to changing environments, mutations that alter the genetic code, antibiotic resistance, all of these things that are facts. They happen, but they don't support evolution. Yeah, the reason why they don't is because the changes that those processes produce degrade living systems. Mm -hmm. Here's uh, where it gets exciting for Christians. As time goes on, scientists see living things degrading genetically. It's called genetic load, and the load's getting bigger and bigger. So if things are deteriorating, then let's just draw some conclusions here. That means in the past, things were less deteriorating. Makes sense. They were better. They were more capable, more complex. Okay, let's graph this. Evolution, we're taught, goes from a big explosion, the hydrogen gas, to solid matter, to a single cell, up and up and up over millions of years, eventually to humans. Okay, so to summarize, hydrogen gas, if given enough time, becomes people. That's some gas. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, God tells us in the Psalms that the heavens declare his glory. And in Romans 1, that God has made his existence known by what he created. Everywhere in the universe, we look, we see amazing design and engineering. In Genesis, we read that he created a universe that was very good originally, but then cursed. In Romans 8, God informs us that his creation, well, there are a number of uh, statements there. He says that the creation was subjected to futility, uh, that it's currently under a bondage to corruption, mm. and that the entire creation, the whole universe, is groaning like it's in great pain. So if we graph that, it begins very good with complex design and engineering at the start. And since the curse, it's running downhill. And these two lines representing the two competing accounts of origins are complete opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, now let's add one more. Let's plot the discoveries of science. What have scientists discovered about the universe and life specifically? Well, in the last half hour, we've seen that living things are going downhill genetically. The code, the programming on the DNA that governs how living things operate, is deteriorating. Look, it's an exact match for biblical creation. And there you have the reason why we here at CMI love science. It supports scripture. Through scientific study, we come to understand how the world around us operates. Uh, now, science deals with things we can observe and test in the present. We can't observe things in the past, so the past is technically out of bounds for the scientific method. But as we've uh, done today, by looking at how things work presently, we see that it supports and confirms the biblical record of creation. And there's so much more out there that supports God's Word. Mm -hmm. Last week, we showed how dinosaurs fit with the Bible, not millions of years. And next week, we're going to look at dating methods and a few other things and see that those also support biblical history. Yeah, now, if you're hearing these things uh, for the first time, can we suggest a way that you can get uh, more of this kind of information? Mm -hmm. Subscribe to Creation Magazine. It's our flagship publication. It's been continuously published since 1978 and changed thousands of lives. You can view a free sample copy at uh, creation.com slash freemag. Then subscribe on our website or contact the office nearest you. 
This magazine will not only greatly encourage your faith, but it will give you conversation content that you can then share with people at church or non-believers. Yeah, a lot of what you heard today was previously published in Creation Magazine. Then we'd love to hear from you. So if this show has helped you understand more about science and the true history in the Bible, send us a note in the feedback section at creation.com. Okay, we'll see you next week. And remember that Christianity is an evidence-based faith. And science supports scripture. Today's episode was originally formatted for broadcast TV and is available online at the links in the podcast show notes. Both are produced by Creation Ministries International, publishers of Creation Magazine. For more information for the accuracy of the Bible, visit creation.com. You can also donate to the ministry at creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.